0: Hi, I'm Clem Alou, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. In this episode, I'm sharing with you a conversation that I recorded with Patrick Moore in late 2020. I was first introduced to Patrick by another guest of Just Sustainability, Teresa Peterson. If you want to listen to the conversation I had with Teresa, check out season one of this podcast. Teresa suggested that I should feature Patrick on Just Sustainability because of his contributions towards efforts to protect the waters of Minnesota and his allyship related to supporting the sovereignty of indigenous nations. Here's how he describes himself I guess
1: I have thought of myself as a, um, a change agent, community organizer. Um, with a regional focus on the upper Minnesota Valley watershed. My work is uh, centered around trying to make this region uh, environmentally aware uh, and uh, to have a sense of watershed consciousness uh, to make it a welcoming and vibrant and creative place on Earth that um, can model uh, new ways to be as a as a country, as a nation, and as a you know community in the world. Okay. I also call myself an artist. Sometimes I, I I think I have a worldview of an artist and community organizer.
0: Patrick mentioned two things while introducing himself that caught my attention. The first is him noting that one of the things that he tried to do was to help people improve their watershed consciousness. I was curious about what he meant by that. His answer to my question offers us a way to think about place and our relationship with the land. Here's that discussion. You said something about wanting to improve consciousness about the the local rivershed. Could you say more about what you mean by that and the way you think about how people can be more conscious of uh, watersheds? Yeah,
1: this is something that uh, has come to me as I um, have been involved as a uh, community organizer and activist around agriculture and water quality issues mm-hmm. for the past 30 years and uh, as a historian mm-hmm. uh, I, I have uh, come to understand that you know we need to see the world uh, you know in terms of how water flows across the land it was inspired by Joseph Nicolay's map from 1838 where he drew this map of the Minnesota before there were any geographic or political boundaries. It was just a map of how the river flowed, how the Mississippi mm-hmm. flowed, the Minnesota, and the Missouri River. And uh, they say he was the last European to see the landscape the way Native people saw it. Right. Um, because that is how they looked at the world, was uh, this river went here. And they had this kind of bird's eye view of how water flowed, because that was very important to them. Right. Um, and so I think watershed consciousness, you know, it transcends uh, political boundaries. It transcends municipal county boundaries uh, and uh, helps us start to realize how connected we are. That we all live downstream. And um, it's part of a larger, you know, geologic time frame consciousness that I try to put myself in when right. I think about these issues and do this work.
0: So it's something about thinking of, about rivers as connections between folks, right? So, like, I do often think about, particularly, like, the, the Mississippi, right? Uh and thinking about how folks conceptualize impacts on it. So I remember, I remember, what was it? I was at some, uh, like, it, it was some sort of fair thing, some sort of, like, environmental thing where there's a bunch of people, like, with, like, posters talking about environmental issues. And, and I remember someone talking about sacrifice zones in the mississippi river watershed uh and whether we should be considering you know thinking of everything that's in the the southeastern part of the state as already stuff we should give up on we should focus instead on the right the the headwaters of the mississippi because you know beyond there it's already so uh the water's so polluted that you know there's no point in worrying about it anymore i thought um well that's a weird thing because mississippi i mean the mississippi river runs all the way to uh north uh like to uh um, Louisiana right to New Orleans uh, and yeah. if we're giving up on it by the time before it leaves Minnesota that's a lot of people that's being messed up is, is that something like is that sort of the thing you're thinking about when you're talking about uh like watershed consciousness thinking about how impacts flow along the major watersheds in the United States or I mean in the world, but I guess in our context in the United States is it something like that yeah, I think so I mean
1: to me um the idea that there should be a sacrifice zone that we should give up is, is abominable, you know, to yeah. me, I, I don't believe in that. Um, but it, uh, but I do that the basic idea is that we all live downstream. We all need to know where the water is coming. We need to know, uh, uh, we have to have this kind of 10,000 foot view of uh, where we live and understand the connections uh, and the different eco zones. And, you know, how food is grown in, in the area where we live, where our food comes from. That's all part of watershed consciousness
0: to me. Right. So it's sort of this, sort of the, the systems thinking that people sometimes talk about when they're talking about sustainability, right? Trying to think of all the, the sort of interconnections between humans and nature and how our activities affect nature and nature affects us, but like framing it in terms of water, right? So thinking of how our, imp- how we might impact the environment around us sort of on a bar to scale through thinking about how we interact with like our watersheds. Yeah. 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 Um, yep. That's
1: definitely it. And besides that, I'm an avid canoeist and kayaker. So sure. I, I love the uh, point of view of the world from being on a river. Right. So by, you know, it's like other people like to golf or downhill ski or, whatever it is they like to do. I, I love to get on the river and uh, canoe. I like to explore the rivers. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's where my sense of boyhood adventure comes from.
0: Huh? No, I can see that. I mean, there's something fun and romantic about sitting in a canoe and just drifting along a river. I mean, nowadays it's more the case that sometimes uh, it's sort of disturbing because see so much garbage in the rivers, but I remember being young, like great many many years several decades ago uh perhaps when the the rivers were a little less messed up and remembering and just enjoying kind of drifting along and like seeing uh seeing how like uh you know the, the land around the river changed and the river itself changed over distances there's something really cool about that and it makes you i guess it makes one appreciate that uh Right, interconnectedness of nature and just the sort of the the diversity in nature. So much happens around rivers.
1: Right. I mean in in my case where I live in the upper Minnesota River watershed of Grand Falls, Montevideo, uh, you know, the rivers are the last remnants of wild places left. Everything else has been tilled, drained, straightened, cultivated. Yeah. The rivers are still the area where there's this ribbon. Of wildness, where you see the wildlife. You see the eagle and the deer and the turkey and the, uh, uh, the, the pelicans and, and the fish and the beaver. You, 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 it's the best place to see those, those other forms of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, so it really is important, you know, to me because it's, it's where I go to reconnect and recharge and listen, um, to nature.
0: After learning about what Patrick meant when he spoke about improving watershed consciousness, I asked him about the other element of his introduction that caught my attention. More specifically, what he said about trying to make the place where he lived more welcoming. Asking him about that led him to discuss the relationship between hospitality, equity, and community organizing. He said something about wanting to make you know, the place you live in welcoming. Can you say more about that? Well, I
1: think you know hospitality
0: is at the core of of equity, if you
1: don't have a sense of uh, hospitality, uh, you can't have equity. Right, um, and and uh, so I, I really do approach things from that uh, welcoming standpoint because I I would have to say I grew up in a family that was very welcoming and the Irish culture in general. You know, there's always another place at the table. Come on in, you're, you're a stranger, but not for long. Um, and then I moved to Western Minnesota, after having traveled around the world, and I I loved it here, but I found that something about the Scandinavian culture was was less than welcoming. Um, It was more kind of reserved, introverted. Uh, And um, I wanted, I saw the need to um, make people who were new to the area feel welcome, and mm-hmm. um and and that, that is the first place you start in order to you know reap the benefits from newcomers and and cultural perspectives that are, that are coming in across your path right so um i started a restaurant okay called the uh, java river it's still there in downtown Montevideo, and we we uh had read the book from good to great yeah <laughs> and uh, we wanted to have a hedgehog concept, and um, I, you know, said the hedgehog concept is we want to become the most welcoming, you know, small town cafe in the world. Right. And so we had a whole series of things, um, d- designed to make sure that happened when people walked in the door, how they were greeted, how we connected customers with each other, and uh, so it was a big part of the mission. And that's you know at the heart of my understanding too of how you do community organizing and how you build community and how you advance change is by uh, having a diverse coalition of people. Yeah. And that always begins with welcome.
0: Yeah. Could you say more about the Hitchcock concept? Because I'm not familiar with it. So how does does it work? So what is it?
1: Well, there's a book. It's about – it's basically a business management book that was popular in early 2000 or late 1990s. About you know what are the Fortune 500 companies and what makes them uh, outperform the stock market every year? You know was the question that the researcher went into, and so he he found these characteristics that were common to all of these companies. Um, And one of them was that they all had a hedgehog concept. They all, they all had an idea of something that they did very well. Um, You know, and so the hedgehog kind of knows one thing. (laughs) And so they, they were, they were aware of what that one thing was and they, and uh, they didn't try to do too many things. They just tried to do that one thing. Well, right? and so you know, they were just saying, if you're going to be good, that we start a business. They said, what is our, what is the one thing we're going to do well? You right. know, what is one thing we're going to be known for?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's what it means. Huh. Okay. Oh, so, and then the thing that your hedgehog happened to know well would be being welcoming. Yes.
1: Yeah. Huh, I, I
0: felt?
1: I felt, I've learned that I've had to teach people how to be welcoming. It, it's something that um, I grew up. You know, we, I, I guess we just learned behavior and mm-hmm. we were taught it. Um, and then it's only when you get out of your own culture and then you realize that it's not that people don't want to be welcoming, it's that they don't know how they, right. they don't know how to do it. So, right. um, so it, it's, uh, you have to demonstrate it.
0: Um, so well, what are some of the first. things you try to teach folks to, to be right to help them be more welcoming?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like a restaurant, you know, when you walk in the door, do people acknowledge you? <laughs> I mean I, I remember being being made to feel very unwelcome yeah. in a small town cafe. I walk in the door, everybody would stop talking, you know, a door would slam behind me like a western movie, everybody started talking <laughs> and nobody would nobody would say, Hi, how are you? Uh, right, come right. and sit with me. you know, who are you? What are you about? Yeah. And so it's just really about having the ability to go up to a stranger and say, hello, you're welcome. Yeah. How are you? What are you interested in? Yeah. Why are you here? What are you doing today? So we would have, we would have things, questions that I would have the staff ask people. Um, what are you up to today? What's going on with you today? Yeah. Um, what is your hobby? Um, what are you reading? Um, and then they would have name tags. And so that the customer could see their name and then the the list of their hometown, you know, is under the name. So so then you could have a conversation about where are you from? And so it's all that small talk. um, And then when we have meetings now, all the meetings I've ever put on to advance environmental sustainability, watershed conscious political action on the environment, Uh or even now, uh, you know, with the PBS Screening documentaries. We always take extra steps to greet people, make sure that everybody has a name tag, make sure everybody feels uh, completely welcome and for coming, and and, and immediately introduce them to other people um, to have small group discussion opportunities that allow um, that community building to happen between uh, people who don't know each other. It's called the art of hosting. It's a, it's a methodology that's taught. You can Google it. Yeah. Um, nothing really that much rocket science, but uh, I'm finding, you know, increasingly people don't have the skills or they don't have the exposure to it.
0: I think you're right. Particularly in this area, it feels that, um, I don't, I don't want to say that people are unfriendly, but people are wary. Right. I, I know that yeah. when you describe talking, walking into a restaurant as like being a Western. I, I've had that feeling myself, right? You walk in, everyone stops for a moment, looks at you, and like, great right, Then it's not so much just like, hey, welcome, but it's more like, who are you? Why are you here? I don't recognize you. And yeah, right. it is remarkably unwelcoming. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, so, uh, yeah. So I appreciate the right, thinking about how we can work to be more welcoming. I mean, I think it's particularly true for anyone that's doing any sorts of organizing because I I do find that a lot of folks are involved in, you know, sustainability or equity or tend to be like kind of go-getter sort of people who are just down to the job versus taking the moment to, you know, make sure everybody feels like they're welcome and that they're being seen and heard and recognized. Right. Well, to me, you know, that's the essence of equity, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. I mean, right. It's that inclusion part, right? It's the part that uh, everybody is, is being acknowledged as being part of the community or being welcome as being part of the community. So you yeah. mostly talked about that in the context of your restaurant. Uh, does it like enter into your, your, your like, how does it enter into your work as like a, a community organizer? So like when you're thinking about building partnerships, how do you, make sure that you know you're integrating the the welcoming into that process well i started i started the restaurant as a community organizing
1: experiment oh okay so, so yeah, t- say um, more about
0: that that's interesting
1: so, yeah i mean i i you know i worked for the land stewardship project for, yeah. for many years and i learned the fundamentals of community organizing and we you know, I would sometimes call it the meeting stewardship project because we were always having (laughs) meetings, having meetings in church basements. We had flip charts. We, you know, would really work hard at getting the people together. And we'd talk strategy about how we were going to advance this, you know, either legislation or this concept or this opposition, you know, down the road with, with people. It was very intentional. Um, and, uh, I'm good at that, and I learned how to do that from some of the best um and but it it seemed to me be lacking because it was like you say always the same type of person that was showing up and um i wanted I wanted different types of people to show up I wanted uh, more uh more diversity in in who we were talking with and so the the restaurant was in i an attempt to say. Um you know, here is a is a restaurant named after the rivers. So it's called it was called Java River, but it was right away it's watershed consciousness. The drinks were named after rivers in the area. The food was locally sourced. This was twenty five years ago, long before the whole hip, you know, uh, farm to table movement was right. going. This is Leon, on. But then it was like whoever walks in the door is your customer but whoever walks in your door is your potential ally right and um and so what happened was all you know all of a sudden the circle of people that i was working with just widened dramatically suddenly i was on a regular day-to-day basis talking with the country club set and the republicans and the stay-at-home moms and the born-again christians As well as the hippie, back to the lander, environmentalist type people, and the artists, and the business people, they were all coming, and so that was a strategy to uh, to to advance this uh, this work Mm -hmm. uh, in a different way. And so instead of everything being so intentional, it was more serendipitous uh, who who walked in the door, and uh, then the dialogue and the and the conversations between people who didn't know each other and the um, ideas that were hatched around the table at the coffee shop became the uh, organizing work that I, mm-hmm. I tried to serve then with with my skills as a you know I always see myself as setting the table getting people to talk coming up with an idea that excites people yeah. um, from different walks of life and then serving that, putting legs under that, and helping to make that rise
0: yeah. uh, into, into something that includes everybody and inspires everybody. Growing up and currently living in rural spaces, I've found that rural folks often have very different ways of thinking about the environment and equity than folks from cities. This can make conversations and solidarity building complicated. That being the case, I followed up on our conversation about hospitality by asking Patrick to tell me about some of the strategies he uses to engage folks from rural places when it comes to his advocacy about sustainability and equity. Here's what Patrick said in response.
1: I've really been a student of this. I've studied the the traditional methodologies, yeah, uh, and then uh, we adapted them at the Land Stewardship Project to work in rural areas. And then I kind of took it even further than I, you know, I learned from my mentors and um, and used this restaurant model, and then have used uh, other models that are really trying to get a broad spectrum of people to the table. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's really a number of technical tricks, and I see the mistakes being made all the time mm-hmm. um, by people. Um, And people often say, you know, how do you get so many people to come? Mm. And it is a science. It's a a, a science and you have to do the work Um, and you have to create this welcoming space that's non-threatening or else people will come. And then you only have one chance to to make them want to come back because it's never about what happens at that one meeting. It's about what happens over time. In as you hold the space and create the space for people who never thought they would ever be in the same room together, let alone be working on something with somebody, you have to, as an organizer, that's your job is to create that welcoming space and to hold that space mm-hmm. so that people come back and continually interact over time. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how much detail you want to go into it, but it's everything from um, the the room. The time of day, uh, the way that it's promoted, um, how you promote it, uh, and then how people are greeted when they come, how the questions are framed, um, how you use a small group dialogue, uh, to get people to share and build mm-hmm. community before jumping right into the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, how people are treated and meant to f- made to feel honored and respected rather than stupid right. or uh, or threatened. I saw that happen all the time with uh, environmental organizing, um, and I was guilty of it myself um, until you know some good friends and experiences pointed it out to me, right. um, and so. That's all there. It's all doable. It's yeah. science, but yeah. it's, it's not. It's not. It's not unachievable.
0: I yeah, I agree. I I don't think it's impossible. I do think a lot of people struggle on it. Yeah, so I would want to talk to you about some of the ways, right? Some of the strategies you've used, um, right? So, like for example, you know, how do you think about messaging so that folks don't, right? Don't feel condescended to, or you know, don't feel like they're being blamed. right? So I, I think I've noticed the same sort of thing that you might have noticed, where it seems that there's often the case that folks who may be environmentally minded or sustainability minded have a tendency to frame issues such that, uh, particularly folks who are farmers, feel like they're being blamed for the some of the environmental problems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and so how have you approached having those conversations to? Right, to be more sort of welcoming and less threatening? Well,
1: you know, I, I was the, uh, the, one of the founders, and, and I was the organizer and executive director of an organization called Clean Up the River Environment, or CURE. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, um, we would have board meetings, and the board was all volunteer, and we always made sure that there were farmers on it, we always made sure that there was diverse uh perspectives, so we always had students, we had women, mm-hmm. we had men, we had business people, we had government people, and we had farmers mm-hmm. and uh you know we had to work I had to work as an organizer very hard to recruit those people and to convince them that they would be safe and that they would enjoy it and they would come mm-hmm. but then once we would have the uh the meetings then Everything was designed uh, on a consensus basis. We would talk about an issue Mm. and we would hear everybody's perspective and uh, we would propose an action. And if not everybody around the room agreed with that action, we wouldn't take that. We'd never use a majority rule. It was always had to be consensus. Uh, And so we were always what I said, kind of in river terms, trying to find the V. You know, if you're in a canoe and you're going down the river, you want to avoid the rocks. And usually the V going away from you is the path to take. So we we're always trying to discern by taking the temperature of the group often um, what the consensus was. Where was the consensus for action? Where was it possible to do something together? And there was a bias for action because you don't learn or grow just by talking about things you have to do something in the world right. and uh, and then you when you have volunteers who work together to do something even if it's just pulling off an event of some kind right. um you learn people learn how to work with each other they learn to respect each other right. and, they, and their leadership skills develop yeah. all this eventually led again i saw so much uh in action and that was you know uh, I, I I'm not patient. I have to be moving, <laughs> right? Um, and so when I see, I'd go to conferences and I'd see, you know, the agency people up there droning on and on with all their rings of facts and figures and data, and um, talking about the, you know, TMDLs and this and that, and then you know I'd be in a room with farmers who were, you know, just bristling at these damn agency people that wanted to shove regulations down their throat. Mm-hmm. And then I'd work with the nonprofit community and they were always just saying those damn farmers, you know, they're they're the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, having had this experience of knowing farmers and being on board with farmers, I'd say, you guys, these are the smartest people in the room. They are the most adaptable, innovative, uh, you know, uh self sustaining uh, creative people, I know. If we don't have them on our side, we'll get nowhere. Right. I mean, we can't. We can't p- proceed. Uh, and so I felt like I was an outlier within right. the environmental group. So I created this what we called upstream, downstream friendship tours. Again, all about the framing. Right. It was to say we all live upstream, we all live downstream. We're, we want to form a friendship, and we want to spend time. Uh, and this is all about, I don't know if you're familiar with Theory U, but if you Google that, you know, that's, that's, I didn't, I was using Theory U before somebody called it Theory U. Again, okay. it came about in my work, in the process of my work, but there's certain steps. And the first step is to see the whole. Yeah. Before you're trying to attract, attach, uh, address any problem, you have to see the whole, um, and see it for what it is and suspend judgment, Uh, and so uh, as an organizer, that was often my first step was, let's help everybody see the whole. Mm -hmm. So let's have people from Red Wing who own uh, lake homes Mm -hmm. uh, and businesses in downtown Red Wing uh, come up to the Upper Minnesota River watershed where all this sediment's coming, Mm -hmm. and let's visit some farms, and let's talk to farmers about what they're doing to control erosion or how they see the world with respect to um, the, the erosion that's filling up Lake Pepin. And by the same time, we would take these farmers and we'd go down to Red Wing and spend time on Lake Pepin. And then we'd use this art of hosting methodology to have these dialogues around round tables that were, uh, you know, only six to eight people each. Right. And, um, it was so transformative to have farmers come up to me and say, I've always wanted to talk to an environmentalist, but I was never had the opportunity right. or a daughter came home from college and she tells me I'm doing it all wrong. And, uh, but you know, I, I tell you, I can't even be seen, uh, trying some of these environmentally sensitive techniques because of the ridicule that I feel like I will get from my neighbors. Right. right. Um. And conversely, um, you know the the environmentalists, you know, really got to see these people as human beings and said, hmm, "If I was in the same boat, would I be doing the same thing?" Yeah, yeah probably I would. You know, um, so you start to take away the demons, you start to take away the, the 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 you know the the black and white, and um, and you start to develop friendships, and uh, and then you you know try to find. Again, where's the commonality that we can act on together? Yeah. So that, that's thats uh, I mean, that type of methodology. I tell you, it, I I got a lot of flack from it, especially yeah. from my friends from the from the from the environmental community, saying that I was pandering right. to industrial right, and that I was uh, giving them a platform. Yeah. But I saw the Trump revolution coming long before it came. Right. I saw that in 2010, 2011. I saw that people didn't give a shit about science or facts. Yeah. And it wasn't ever about that. It was about having to build a place, a safe place where people could have a relationship. Yeah. Um, And, and you'd never convince them by beating them over the head with facts, you know, or, or or anything. So these are all things that I've learned from just,
0: uh, you know, trial and error
1: and experience.
0: No, I I think, uh, Something you said that really resonates with me, right? The, the role of social pressure and this, so, like, and, and sort of the, the desire for conformity, right? So the, I mean, that's definitely uh, you, uh, I think you talked about it in the context of environmentalists, uh, right? What, like being concerned that you're pandering, but uh, also you mentioned it with the, with the farmers, the ridicule they might get for doing things in sort of the non standard ways and, That's something that is really kind of visible in rural spaces, right? Uh, There's small communities. Everybody knows each other. And there's kind of a, right, there are strong social pressures to do things in the expected ways that things should be done. Uh, And there is a lot of ridicule that happens. How do you navigate that, right? So I I do think often, right, uh, the biggest thing that's stopping folks from doing better is are those social pressures right I think individually a lot of folks want to do things better or are really open to change, but they're hesitant to do so because of the, the social pressures that would come with it.
1: Yeah so it, you know the work is is, is you got to be in the work for a long haul you know it's mm-hmm. Wendell Perry says you got to be uh, planting sequoias you know uh, <laughs> and oak trees. I mean you can't you can't expect to see immediate results of your work. But the methodologies that are proven time and again are farmer-led research, yeah. farmer-led on-farm research yeah. and demonstration and field days yeah. uh, where people are welcomed into somebody else's home and and they're welcome to learn. I mean, this is how corporate America does it. They do it for farmer-led research to grow mm-hmm. the latest uh, GMO hybrid. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same for sustainable practice. You gotta, you gotta have farmers who are willing to try, farmers right. who are willing to show each other farmers. You gotta right. have well organized events where people come and learn from each other, and gradually it becomes, uh, you know, more um, easier to yeah. to go beyond those uh, those barriers.
0: Yeah, but Is you that- have to do that work. It's a, it's, there's no substitute. Yeah, for, for it. No, it's interesting that the way you're describing it, um, I've heard one other person describing their work the same way. And that's uh, Eric Holt Jimenez, who, uh, um, I don't know if he still is, but used to be uh, one of the directors for Campesino y Campesino. And he was talking about working with uh, Central and South American farmers. And it was the exact same thing, right? It's getting, trying to find one or two farmers that were willing to do it and then convincing them to be able to like show their neighbors. And then, developing learning networks of farmers where they're just teaching uh, one another, and their neighbors, how to, you know, have better practices. Um, Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like the completely different contexts, but like very similar strategies. Well, I think it's because we're human.
1: I mean, we're human, we're tribal, and uh, we, we, we are fearful and we do what we know and we have, you know, in, in, in rural areas, those relationships are very strong yeah. and those pressures are very strong. And, you know, a lot of times when I came to realize doing this work that there'd be a 50 year old guy mm-hmm. who was very interested in maybe trying something new, mm-hmm. but his 85 year old father still called the shots of what happened on that farm. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, so you'd think that a 50 year old person would have, you know, some freedom of their own, and they don't. Yeah, it's, it, And that's, that's another story.
0: At this point, our conversation substantially changed direction. An offhand comment I made about objectives, which I decided to cut because it was distorted due to a technical glitch, prompted Patrick to tell me about how he thinks about sustainability and equity. We also chatted about some lessons about relationship building that Patrick learned from Teresa Peterson, who, as I noted previously, was featured in the first season of this podcast. Here's what Patrick said. To me,
1: sustainability is a quest. Right. It's a quest, a human quest uh for balance okay. uh of, of of right relationship with each other and the uh, the uh, earth on which we depend right and so it, and that's and it and it's hard to achieve and it's and we really i don't there's very few examples of us having achieved it you right. know uh, especially both at the same time <laughs> you know so uh 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 uh, you can have maybe more sustainability, but you know, there's, there's slavery, and there's subjugation, you know, okay. there's examples of that hierarchy. Um, so, uh, it's a quest. So yeah. I, I look at it more as what is required for sustainable, sustainability and equity to, to thrive. What is required? Yeah. Um, and what is required is, is compassion and empathy what is required is uh the uh, the big picture mm-hmm. uh the watershed consciousness the, the the understanding of the deep time mm-hmm. uh uh of, of how long you know we've been here and and the big picture of how uh things are all related and and what's required is humility mm-hmm. and what's required is uh, uh a willingness to let go of power and um, so those are those are all things that you know I'm trying to work on is is to how do we create a culture where those things are are lifted up, you know? Because um, I remember there's a great quote, uh, you know, Sitting Bull was asked uh, why why do the people revere you so much? And he and he and he said, "Well, I think I look at people in the white culture. They revered because they have a lot of money, yeah. and they own a lot of things. And uh, people revere me because they don't have anything, because I'm poor. And I and I see it as my job to give it away what I have. Um, and so, um, to me, the work is is about." Uh, you know, at the, and so I, I work now in this PBS, and I haven't really talked to anything about that. But this this is a much bigger platform than I've ever worked on before. Yeah. In terms of being able to uh, work with people uh, in, a, in a larger region, and then uh, work on the the messaging uh, and the consciousness raising through through video, uh-huh. um, and then the relationship building that's required to make good video. Uh-huh. Um, especially with Native Americans, uh-huh. and so that's been such a big growthful uh, 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 thing for me. To you know, and Teresa Peterson has been a great, fabulous ally and guide and bridge builder that has helped me grow. And then as a result, our our organization has grown with more cultural competence and awareness of equity issues. And as Teresa has said, and you know, as you come to realize that you you don't enter in this work uh, in the short term. It's not like a two year grant or it is done. You know, mm-hmm. this is a long term commitment. It's about developing friendships that you will have for a long time. The work is is not going to bear fruit for a long, long time. And it's a lot longer than most people are used to thinking about things. And they, and I I know myself, I I felt like, well, come on, you know, I've read the books. I understand, you know, what's happened to you. uh, I'm just more understanding than most white people are. Um, I want to work with you. Why don't you trust me? (laughs) (laughs) it is just so funny now they talk about, it, but that is was the attitude I had, you know yeah and um, and so building that trust takes a long time. Yeah. but it's been great and uh, we're we're growing as a result of it. And so I just say anybody that's entering into this work that looks for instant results that is that's got to be put aside. Yeah. Um, it, it's
0: it's about committing to the long haul. Right. It's about recognizing that deep time, the that, uh, right, I mean, you know, I, I think rapid changes, particularly when you think about environment, are never good, right? And I, I think when you think about equity, it's about relationships, and any relationship that's sort of quick and easy is probably not that deep of a relationship. As our conversation began to wind down, I asked Patrick, as I ask all the guests of the Just Sustainability podcast, if there was anything that he'd like to talk about that we hadn't gotten to. He just had one quick thing to say namely that it's important when engaging with a community to take the time to develop real partnerships and not just to swoop in and use folks in order to pursue one's own ends.
1: If you want to work in, in a rural area, you know, you have to be here. You have to be grounded here. You can't just kind of come in, parachute in, and then parachute back out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So, no, I think that's true for everywhere, right? Um, I think it's not just a real thing. I think working with any community or one is not originally from that community, or even if one is originally from a community, but has been away for a while or has had their perspective shifted by, you know, the way the vicissitudes of life. Um, Yeah. I, I I think you're, I think you're right. I think humans in general uh, have a very hard time viewing the world outside their own perspective and assume that other people have the same uh, values and objectives that they do. And, are often very blind to what um, folks who think about the world differently than themselves, the way they approach the world and the way they understand the world. And then also are bad at remembering that just because you think something's the right way to do something, it's not necessarily what other people would think. Yeah. That brings us to the end of another episode of Just Sustainability. In this episode, we got to meet Patrick Moore and learn about the relationship between hospitality, equity, and community organizing. We also learned about building relationships and the importance for community engagement, particularly in rural communities when it comes to building coalitions to work towards equity and sustainability. In the next episode, please join me to learn more about Ren Olive, who's worked to build more sustainable and accessible food systems across the state of Minnesota through their work with the regional sustainable development partnerships and second harvest Heartland. Thank you for listening to just sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.